0: the podcast for the inquisitive diver
1: hey there dive buddies and welcome to the show let me tell you about my next guest this wonderful lady is a course director shark behaviorist conservationist public speaker and founder of the non-profit organization people of the water a member of the explorers club she has also been inducted into the women divers hall of fame is a member of the Ocean Artist Society and a recipient of the Platinum Pro 5000, as well as being a writer and listed on, as an actor on IMDb. Also known as the Shark Dancer, the Shark Whisperer, and the Mother of Sharks, I'm super excited to welcome this absolute legend and wonderful woman to the show, Christina Zanato. First question, how on earth do you fit it all in?
0: <laughs> By waking up at 5am, as you can see. Yeah. <laughs> It didn't come all at once. It's been different stages, different things through the life. But, uh, yes, it's uh, passion, quite a lot of longer hours that I don't feel because I really love what I do. Yeah. And uh, living in a place that actually allows me to do them on a short uh, notice.
1: Yeah. So it, in, you're in the Bahamas, right? And um, I've never visited the Bahamas, but it looks amazing, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, but where, where actually abouts are you? Because I just had a quick look on the map there, and there's quite a few islands within the location. We,
0: uh, I am in Grand Bahama Island. Um, there's over listed or seven hundred islands, but in total, there's over three thousand between islands, keys, and atolls in, in this country. So we're, we're definitely an island nation. But wow. I'm on Grand Bahama Island.
1: Okay. Um, well, to, to to kick it off, where did it all start? How did you get into uh, the water?
0: It all started uh, with my family. My family is uh, a family of the ocean. And so as I was growing up, they always brought me to the ocean. My mom is from a part of Italy. Uh, the It's the north uh, west, but it's the northwest on, on the coastline. It's called Liguria, so G- where Genoa is.
2: Mm. It's
0: just like in this little corner, and they're... Uh, fishermen and people of the sea. And then my dad was uh, always a water person. He actually went into the special forces of the military in Italy, Mm. what will be now the Green Beret of the Frogman or the uh, Marines in the United States. And uh, I grew up with these pictures of him doing um, diving with a uh, pure oxygen rebreather but he still had that passion for the water. So both of them always took me uh, swimming to to the ocean, to the sea. Um, my mom's uncle had a sailboat and took people cruising around the Mediterranean for a living.
2: Yeah.
0: And so sometimes in the summer, we'll be on the sailboat when he was in port and he wasn't working. And so the water's always been part of my upbringing. Yeah. The passion for scuba diving comes directly from the pictures and the stories of my dad and his background when he was a Special Forces military. Yeah. Combine all of that with the opportunity of always going uh, to the water and finding myself comfortable in the water, then came the childhood dream of one day becoming an underwater scuba ranger who would have sharks for friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did say that. Uh, yeah, get rid of the ballet, but let's just get in there with the sharks.
0: Yeah, the
1: ballet didn't really fit with <laughs> with me. <No. laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um so how long did that do in the military then? Um my dad was. It an, I
0: actually never saw him in the military. He was ah. in the military seven years and then he retired and started traveling the world, mm. uh, doing a uh, working for construction companies into like large projects. Mm. So, uh, building for example roads, railways, bridges, as we we're talking about your background in engineering, he was involved in these big projects. And so, even before I met my mom, he actually worked back in Iran, in Iraq, Northern Africa. Hmm. And then he met my mom in one of the projects when he was working in that part of Italy. And then we moved to, to Africa. And, uh, and so I grew up actually in Central Africa. Oh, whereabouts? Uh, first, we were in Kalonda and Kikwit, which were in the center of what it's called. It's called now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Back yeah. then, it was the former Zaire. Yeah. And then we moved into the rainforest, the Mayombe Forest of the current re- Republic of the Congo, which was back back then known as Congo. Mm. So, it grew up in, like this very outdoorsy, kind of like wildlife Um very out of the boundaries and so although it was not always by the ocean uh, when we had a chance we were always going to the water yeah. and so it was this mix I guess of wildlife and water that kind of like created me and this desire to maybe one day have a similar lifestyle yeah. I didn't really fit with the regular day to day life once we moved back to Italy it Just <laughs> it just wasn't me
1: yeah, yeah. There's no jungle. It's just concrete.
0: It's actually, Italy is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. This mm. is amazing. I come from Verona. Uh, that's where we lived. Uh, we were on Garda Lake. Mm. Uh, there's a, so much history. Every cobblestone of this country has a, something to tell. Every, every time I go to Italy, I'm in love with the little details. But it was just a lifestyle that was not me. So, as much as I love uh, the country that I am from, and when I go back. I, I walk through it, and I try to absorb every single part of it. Mm. The, the nine to five, or the always a shoes on, or you always have to be dressed in a certain way. It just—it was just too tight for me.
1: Yeah. Do you, um, do you do you do you find it a little bit uh, weird when you know you visit somewhere like well Australia or Italy, and there's just so many people around you? I, I kind of struggled with it when I first moved away from living a beach life and coming back to, you know, city life, and I felt like my eyes were just constantly moving because there was so much going on all the time.
0: Yes, I become um, overstimulated, and yeah. it makes me exhausted at the end of the day. Um, what the thing that I still have to adapt to is uh there's there's two things and and this is a little bit like brought on by island life one is the distances (laughs) in our island life you're so used everything is within a certain distance yeah and when you're somewhere else you know you need to do something and it might take half a day to plan prepare drive go and do and then the other one is like the uh, sometimes the amount of people Just the amount of people that you constantly walk by, so the constant chatter and noise, uh, that can be, uh, for me, uh, strange and just very, like I said, overstimulating. The third one is actually, um, depending on the season, but I I notice is like uh, my feet at the end of the day after being all day in the shoes, It's just, (laughs) they're like, please stop. (laughs) And and my skin, you know, always covered in clothes. It's just, it it takes a couple of weeks actually for the body to adapt to all that.
1: It does. um, Before I came to Australia, I was out in Papua New Guinea, and I've been living the life in in Southeast Asia, and i would not worn shoes for six years. So I was very used to walking through the jungle over whatever ground in Papua New Guinea. No problem. uh, Barefoot. And then I come here and you 've got to wear shoes you can't even there's some places you can 't even go into with flip flops on you 've got to have closed shoes you know and um within a year, my feet were you know soft as a baby 's bum. it was ridiculous as soon as you walk over walk over something that 's you know relatively flat i 'm like, oh my god what 's that you know painful
0: Island life i think it's it's an amazing life, but I also've seen a lot of people coming here thinking that it would have be been an amazing life and running away screaming right. um. Literally, you know, like, this is not for me. So there's a lot of people, and, and I'm pretty sure you've experienced that, Papua New Guinea, even more so than this island. At least we're only 40 miles from the United States. It's one, you know, island hop, literally yeah. paddle hopper type of flight. But it's the remoteness that some people can take, and mm. they can't take the confinement of the island, nor the difficulties that people don't realize or living on an island. So for as magical as it is for some of us, it's very much a struggle for many others unless they have quite a lot of comforts and they're capable of ta- you know of having these comforts coming in um I don't think it's for everyone like it's not for everyone to live in a city yeah. living in a city is not for me and it's not not right or wrong it's just what fits uh with ourselves and yeah. what we're capable of taking in
1: it's what makes you feel comfortable isn't it
0: Correct. And yeah. what in a certain way fulfills you and what and when you wake up in the morning what makes you go, I can't wait for my day.
1: Yeah.
0: For me is very important. It's one of the things I I try to have is yes, we're always looking forward to something. It's actually cool. I can't wait until, you know, I can, travel can resume. I haven't seen my mom in a year and a half. I mm-hmm. would love to absolutely hug her. And you can say, I can't wait for that. But for me, it's more like when you wake up that morning, is being happy for that morning, for what is about to happen on that day, mm. rather than say, oh, I can't wait for the weekend, or I can't wait for my vacation. Mm. And I think that is what in our choices is important. Yeah. And that's how I've decided to live my life.
1: So you've, you've probably got it pretty pretty well nailed down by now. What is it, 25 you, years on the island?
0: 27 years 27. on the island. 27. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have very much uh, very nailed down uh, both the day-to-day And, uh, you know, people ask, like, even the preparation for the hurricanes, how it's organized, what I have in the apartment, um, what, how it is the process as the hurricane, for example, approaches, Mm. uh, how is my shopping scheduled? Um, We have in cave diving, we have a saying, it says, you know, two is one, is one and is none. And it really works well for the island life. So, Um, If something is now sold on the island, chances are there's one or two spares somewhere in the closet of certain things. And could be, for example, my camera gear, Mm. uh, the headphones that I'm using right now, uh, the cable to charge the computer. If there are no stores on the island to sell it,
2: Mm.
0: two is one. And when I'm down to one, one is none. So I actually go ahead and on the next opportunity... um, order a different one because it might take a couple of weeks for me to receive it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell my missus that uh, two for one and one is one is zero because she's already a hoarder. Um, (laughs) When when we get down to two of anything, we get another 10. Uh, we're running out of room <laughs> in our place
0: <laughs> I'm not a hoarder I am uh, I live in a very small apartment, everything is organized but yeah. I have to work with that mentality, so like um, now is April so when we go shopping and we buy uh, six can of beans to eat with a salad mm. currently we also buy six can of beans to put off to the side ah. and we do that with each shopping so when the should the hurricane hit, I don't have to rush to the supermarket to buy supplies, for example, because this is going to be super overcrowded. So I have this system where I spend a little bit for several months in advance. And then when the hurricane season ends, I consume what I've been putting away the of, these beans and mm. these vegetables and these chickpeas and all that, and then start again yeah. <laughs> March and April of the next year.
1: So uh, when is hurricane season then? Is that, is that March-April?
0: No, the official is June 1st through end of November or 1st of November. The peak season is usually um, beginning of August, sorry, end of August, September. And we've been having some, you know, really weird storms on the 25th of October. But I would say the peak season is really... September, so like at the end of the summer when it's the hottest, mm. uh, we've been having storms also in June, July, but like usually the the big ones, the historical ones that have demolished this island, are all been between September and October. Those that's our peak season.
1: Yeah, and is it is it regular occurrence that every year it, it, there's a serious amount of damage done, or are you all getting better and better each year at, at protecting yourselves?
0: Uh. No, there's not each year, but the, the storms have progressively become stronger. Okay. And uh, strong storms are historicals. I mean, if we look back at 1865, there were still strong storms. So they're not mm. uh, unique. The problem is right now they're more frequent. So we had a Hurricane Force 5, a Hurricane Matthew hit here in 2016. Mm. And then in 2019, we had Hurricane Dorian, which basically ravaged between Abaco and Grand Bahama.
2: Mm.
0: And um, we're still recovering from Dorian. Wow. Dorian was one of those monster storms um, at 200-plus miles per hour winds, and it literally sat on the island for three days. So um, if a hurricane comes through, it usually takes about 12 hours. Okay. Um, it's a different kind of strength uh, storm. So we hope not to have to relive Dorian for maybe a decade or more so, hmm. but it's all dependent on what's happening with you know our oceans, uh, the climate change or hmm. whatever it's happening with the heating up of the planet and the storms have definitely changed in frequency yeah. and increase in intensity
1: yeah it's all a very fine balance isn't
0: it yes and it's not that every year last year luckily we were very lucky we had one storm coming through hurricane force one and for us on the island hurricane force one is kind of like oh yeah hurricane force one prepare <laughs> it's okay you know sit on the couch power goes off and 12 hours later they have the happy island back on its feet yeah. is you know the hurricane force four and five and four and five that then sits on the island obviously it's it's different so the, the yeah. island is very the islands are very well prepared um, the way they manage power and water I think is very very good um, they tend to shut off the water and the power on purpose when the winds goes above a certain Speed. So, should any damage occur, there's no risk of electrocution of people. Yeah. There's no risk of water pollution or water contamination, and and I think the response after the hurricane is usually uh, pretty pretty good. So, have a down 30. Dorian is something that um, can fault anyone for for the what happened in the aftermath. I mean, seventy percent of the island went underwater. Wow. so even the places even the places that were supposed to send help like the firefighter the police mm-hmm. stations the ambulances everything went underwater. so Jesus. there was no hardware stores no ambulance no trucks no fires we had to wait really for everyone from the outside to to come in and help so it's it, it, it was beyond anybody's control so you can't fault you know the delay in, in response primarily mm-hmm. it was uh, uh, there's a lot of, like, uh, personal responses. So those that came unscatted out of the storm were the one that uh, moved into gear right away. Yeah, um, We were, the two of us, were two of the lucky ones, and the 30% of the island didn't flood. And so within about a week, right, just trying to... <laughs> Figured out what happened. Uh, Within a week, we started doing uh, support missions. The first that came in to help were like the small planes. There was like this uh, beautiful organization of like private uh, plane uh, um, flyers, Mm -hmm. uh, pilots with like little Cessnas that could carry 400, 600 pounds. And there was enough place for them to land on the tarmac of this demolished airport. And then anybody, everybody that had a vehicle, obviously the Rotary Club help and all of that, hmm. we start carrying things everywhere where we could. Yeah. And then the big boys came in, you know, the the big organizations start coming in and there was like a, the bigger airplanes coming in, which obviously were needed. But it was hmm. really cool to see like individuals that had come out unscattered and had a vehicle, everybody pitched in to help anybody they could.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Real community bonding.
0: Yes. there's. Uh, I always say if the end of the world comes, I'll stay put here uh, in the Bahamas because there's uh, something about uh, the way the Bahamians are designed to withstand hardships, but also the way they're designed to uh, like pitch him. I know the world heard about the violence that actually came out of the Dorian hurricane. But to be honest with you, I think that was the exception to the rule. Okay. We were driving through areas where people had none left, open pickup truck and everything, and people will just get themselves in line and say, hey, can I please have that? Do you have this? Um, we never once, I lived here 27 years, and um, it's a beautiful population. It's a population that say, hey, I have a generator. Would you like share a drop cord? Give me five bucks for the fuel. Yeah, These are the kind of people, and these are the news that really didn't, Come out as much. And yeah. these were the trend I was trying to share. Now, listen, I said, people here need help, and most of them are just like what Bahamians are this wonderful population, very peaceful, very friendly, uh, very kind. And that is the story I wish had gone out more rather right? yeah. than, you know, the occasional shooting and a robbery. Things happen, of course. Yeah. And like let's, said, let's
1: be fair. I mean, the media is going to focus on those things that are going to catch a story in a headline, aren't they?
0: It, it, yes. And it was unfortunate because there was a lot of people saying, well, we're not coming <clears> because it's so dangerous. And I'm like, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's not <laughs> dangerous. Uh, just please come. People need help. And people are very friendly and very thankful.
1: Yeah. Well, it's good to hear. Well, let's hope that you don't get many hurricanes for many years.
0: Thank you. Yes, let's hope not. Because right now we actually, um, we were slowly recovering. We were doing good. And then, you know, COVID hit. And that was uh, oh. was another big blow. Because yeah. obviously these islands, um, they're, you know, they have a fishery industry. They have a banking industry. Uh, there's some construction industry. But then primarily there's a lot of tourism industry. hmm And that really, the country took a blow with the tourism industry. So now we start having people coming back, you know, vaccinations are starting to move. Mm -hmm. We have some rules to come in, but they're actually pretty affordable. You just have to have a negative test and purchase an insurance visa, um, which covers in case, you know, you're discovered you're positive. That visa actually covers for your repatriation or for helping you out in the hospital. And then you can actually be around the islands the islands are open we actually have a pretty normal life within the islands
1: that's good to hear i see yeah, it um, nice. I'm, I'm in a group um it's texas scuba divers on facebook there's like nearly three thousand members in there now and can, right. I'm, I'm getting pretty jealous about it as well because over <laughs> that side of the world seem to you know, have it have it nailed down with getting across borders and going diving you know so you'd see people popping down to cozumel and mexico and all sorts um, yeah uh, some
0: countries don't even have rules like Mexico, but like for us it's a negative test and mm-hmm. purchase the visa and then while you're on the island included in your visa after three four days, you have to have a quick test just to make sure you're still not sick mm-hmm. but otherwise you know shops are open, activities are open, the hotels are open, yeah. people are out and about um, I think we still have an 11 pm curfew, but personally i don't feel it it doesn't really affect my lifestyle so
1: yeah. Well, I mean, when you're getting up at this time in the morning, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised yeah, that you're well, well into your bedtime by then.
0: Yeah, 11 p.m. is well. I'm, I'm already in my RAM, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, we should talk about diving really as well. But um, before I do, um, what what is it that you do fitness wise? Because you're obviously a, a very fit woman. And I noticed on, I was doing a bit of Facebook stalking yesterday, I think it was. And uh, (laughs) I saw that you did some training for a half marathon and stuff like that. Is is there other stuff that you do to maintain your fitness?
0: So my two, uh, I would say my three way of maintaining fitness. The one that are designated as fitness is I do morning runs and then usually um, either morning or evening, depending on my schedule, Mm. a yoga practice. Okay. A pretty advanced yoga practice those are primarily my two ones so it's running and yoga mm. but then i have a physical job yes so my job is a job where i walk them down the ramps and walking up and down the boats or carry tanks um during covid i had other jobs that were as physical even if we were not diving mm. so i have a very much uh movement into my life so on an average day i And I did this just to calculate, you know, but like for me, it's very easy to put in on a day without running 10,000 steps. On a day with running, it's going to be twenty to 25,000.
2: So
0: uh, that's what I do. It's a mix of exercising and then having a very active lifestyle. It could be a walk on the beach with the pups or going swimming with them. And and then do, do something physical in the garden or helping someone with some work at their home, you know, it just... I'm just a very active person.
1: Yeah, yeah. I saw the little video snippet of you swimming with the dogs chasing after you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, you know, like the cave diving itself, it's a, it's a hike, uh, you know, workout itself, you know. A day mm. of cave diving is we can hike sometimes for… By the time we carry all the gear to the cave entrance, sometimes we're down a kilometers with all this gear on our because we did different trips from the car to the cave entrance. Yeah. Then you start doing a three to four hour cave dive. You swim in two three kilometers, by the time you go in and out, mm. and then you carry everything back. So a day of cave diving on you know, the next day, you can easily rest. That's so loads. A, of that's loads
1: of calories. I, I'm trying to find someone that's um, a nutritionist, that's a scuba diver, that can actually quantify and discuss the calories burnt while we're diving, because it's it's relatively common no- knowledge that you know we're looking at about 340 calories for every 30 minutes that we're submerged. So if you're really? doing a yeah, huh. so if you're doing a three four hour dive, and then you've got all the equipment carrying before and after. You don't really need to do any other exercise, do you?
0: <laughs> no, that day we don't do any other exercise. And maybe the mm-hmm. next day we also don't exercise. Not that the next day we wake up and go for a run. We actually kind of like relax. Maybe at the end yeah. of the next day I'll do some some yoga, yeah. uh, primarily obviously to also loosen up the muscles. So for me, flexibility is also very important. Mm. So all these activities are very good from a cardio um, point of view, obviously man- maintaining the weight, uh, burning the calories. But then yoga is, I usually say yoga is the one that repairs everything else that I do in my life. So uh, <laughs> yeah. carrying a rebreather through the forest, going cave diving for four hours in a certain position has a strain on certain muscles on your back, on your <laughs> shoulder muscles, on, on certain, you know, the, the lower back, for example. And so then I do yoga and it could be either a very intense practice or sometimes what we call restorative yoga, which where I focus on really stretching and moving those muscles that in a certain way tighten one yeah. way. I try to stretch it the other way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I should, I should, I should do some yoga. The message Tr- keeps trying to get me to do it, but um, I'm more, much more into uh, lifting heavy weights. But it's...
0: You can do both. I know, you can do I should stretch more, to be honest. And- Yeah,
1: I should stretch more. I get many aches and pains, and it's it's because of lack of stretching. I'm sure. Um. Anyway, let's 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 get on the diving front. <laughs> going tangent, man. Here. Um. Okay. So, since we mentioned the, the the caves and the cave diving, um, how did how did you was it just a transition or did you just get curious from going from open water into cave diving and what was the attraction at first?
0: The attraction came very early. Um, On the island, we have caves, but we also have this beautiful cavern called Ben's Cavern, which was dived the first time by uh, my original mentor, Ben Rose, Mm -hmm. back in the 60s, early 70s. And so when I was here as an open-water diver, Uh, they were offering the cavern tour. So the cavern is the first room. You don't go beyond the daylight. It's a little guided tour. Mm -hmm. And I joined it. And I actually lied because you needed to have 20 log dives, but I actually had 11. (laughs) And that was my 11th dive. So my instructor said, he says, you're good, you're good. He says, just go and, you know, you'll be able to do the dive. And I fell in love with the overhead environment the day I did that cavern tour. Yeah. the clarity of the water the stalactite and the stalagmites for me cave diving is like opening uh this enormous enormous book i imagine going to one of those ancient libraries and i open this giant books kind of like has a little bit of dust as you open it, and it goes poof.
2: <laughs> but as you
0: open it it has these huge pages that tells you everything about the history of the planet yeah and you can read it from through the cave you can as you swim through you can hear the water dripping you can feel the water flowing you can like almost like the ebb and flowing of the ocean and you can say oh i can see where the water rose and then went back down and then this happened and then this layered and so you keep reading and it constantly has information for you that's what i fell in love with and i have this marvelous discovery That's what cave diving was for me. So within then I had to wait about two years Mm -hmm. when I became a cave diver. And then I came back on the island and I started cave diving and uh, I never stopped. And then slowly when I dived all the lines that the previous explorer had put in and I arrived at the end of the lines or along the lines, I started seeing patterns. And I was like, huh, they didn't go down this tunnel. And so I became what they call an explorer, which comes (laughs) as a consequence of. Dive in diving dive in the cave starts having certain patterns that you're able to interpret hmm. and then all of a sudden it seems to almost to me it's almost like opens the doors goes opens the doors, like okay here look there's a little passage that nobody else has saw Or it could be a big passage yeah and then 2020 was I would say the pinnacle of of uh, uh, my cave diving career, together with my buddy Kevin Lorenzen, we actually discovered two brand new cave systems. Like entrance from the entrance, really. So before I was laying line in previously explored caves, and uh-huh. I found up to kilometers of new tunnels in previously explored caves, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know that hundreds of people came through that cave and nobody noticed that, but like two brand new, a uh, virgin system. We were able to lay over 15 kilometers of lines in these two systems.
1: 15 kilometers? Universe. We had
0: nothing else to do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. How long did that take you?
0: It actually didn't take much because we were cave diving an average of six to eight hours per week. We weren't rebreathers. So I have yeah. a, a, a side mount rebreather, which allows me object to go in the smallest of the tunnels and areas, mm-hmm. and it's perfect for this kind of caves.
1: That's the case, cave so- system,
0: isn't it? The KISS system, KISS Sightwinder. Yeah. And uh, we were doing, usually on a fresh rebreather, we would do a four to a four and a half hour cave dive. Mm. And then within one or two days, uh, uh, knock off the next two and a half hour dive on a short either picking up some strengths, maybe doing some, some photography, maybe doing some uh, mapping at the time. Mm. To, um, and then break down the rebreather, pack it up again and start all over again. Uh, During the height of COVID, there was nothing else to do. And so (laughs) we had a special permit to go cave diving from the Bahama National Trust and the police force. And they gave it to us because obviously you go from, you know, your storage where the cave gear is to the cave. And obviously social distancing is is very much (laughs) present. And that kept our sanity. We would, I think if would have been in a regular work time, we will still be working on that project. Mm. So because maybe because of me- the six to eight hours, we actually knocked off a couple of cave, a cave in about like two and a half three months.
1: Brilliant. So maybe COVID was a bit of a blessing. That
0: COVID for me was not um, really all bad time. It yeah. was a interesting time. Um, it actually brought up some changes. Um, but for me, were positive, especially mentally. Mm. Physically, was a little bit of a struggle in the beginning, especially with the limitations of the 200 meters from home exercise. Uh, you couldn't go out on the boat. You couldn't even go on the beach. Some wow. of that stuff was tough, especially in the middle of the summer. But like psychologically and in the long term, 2020 for me was not actually a bad year. Yeah. It was a unique year of, of reinvention rediscovery, a newfound freedom that I kind of lost in the last few years. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: If I have to say, for me, 2019 was actually the worst year. In 2019, I lost my dad on April 14th. Six weeks later, I lost my mentor, Ben Rose, and his wife and dogs in a house fire. They basically, they wiped him out in the middle of the night. Uh, from carbon monoxide and then the fire and eight weeks later Dorian hit the island so when people go oh 2020 I'm like 2020 was a joke
1: 2020 (laughs) is a break (laughs)
0: 2020 for me was an interesting break and it's Mm. actually brought up uh, positive outcomes that Mm. I'm still benefiting from right now Yeah, um, including those two amazing experiences and explorations
1: yeah that sounds awesome Now, you've actually found you've linked the caves with sharks, haven't you?
0: I've linked it in my work with time. Okay. Um, So, before I had a passion, I have a passion for sharks, and I think that's what I'm known the most. Mm. But I have an equal passion for caves that people don't really uh, realize. I mean, lately I've been trying to share a little bit more. And then as I was working to protect both, I realize they're very much linked, especially here in the Bahamas, and is a very, in a certain way, uh, simple, but it took some time to really realize it is uh, the caves uh, that are on land have water that travels uh, to the ocean or through the terrain, even in a way where maybe I can't fit, and comes out into the mangroves, comes out into a lagoon, comes out into a bay. And we don't realize if I demolish the land over the cave that is under the, the ground, that water with that pollution travels in all the other aspects. Well, sharks. Uh, depend on mangroves, sharks, moss, species of sharks here in the Bahamas, give birth in the mangroves. Mm. It's very, very common to go in the mangroves and to find baby tigers, baby lemons, baby silkies, uh, mantas, uh, stingrays, all these cartilaginous fish. Then there's corals and all the other fish. Mm. And so if I pollute, I can pollute five, six miles inland, but that pollution will reach the ocean and it will reach these uh, nursery grounds. It will eventually affect the entire ecosystem from which the sharks and all the other animals depend and that's how i connected into my educational work into the exploration work but i also physically connected a land cave to an ocean blue hole in 2012 i swam from a land cave into an ocean blue hole where we have some caves that come out in the mangroves Mm -hmm. i actually literally swim from land into like off the beach like five hundred <laughs> feet off the beach into an ocean blue hole, and that was the first time that it was like literally done. So if I can fit with all that gear through that, yeah, imagine particles of pollution, yeah, and that was the scope of that connection.
1: It's impressive, and you've got uh, um, a lot more work to do on that, or is it an, an ever um, what's the word? Yes, <clears throat> ever There's evolving. More work.
0: Mm. The I want to revisit this cave that I connected from the land to the ocean. Um, one, because it is extremely polluted and it's connected to some areas and, and might have origins from those areas. We just need to verify that. So we're in a process right now to... Apply for actually research permits. There's a new law that just came out, so right now we're now kind of like on hold, trying to get the permits before we continue mm-hmm. our exploration. Uh, so I want to resume that, but we still have quite a lot of um, entrances. So one of the things that we've done is we um, basically identified all possible entrances and just what we do we go in a hike literally through them you know with boots machete long pants and everything mm-hmm. and then when we arrive to the area we do like a little scouting And so what we're trying to do is just really give a very, very detailed map of every possible entrance, even if it doesn't have a lead, and say, hey, look, here we found fresh water. Mm. Uh, I can't fit through because the cave entrance collapsed, but we saw signs of stalactites, stalagmites. And at least there's a comprehensive map for now of this island and some of the keys, and then hopefully um, with time and if we ever be able to connect finances to that on different islands. Yeah, and have more of these um, kind of like comprehensive understanding of what runs below our feet. Because it's very true, out of sight, out of mind, and it's mm. very unfortunate because it's what is out of sight is very still important for our health.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Did you, did you watch um, Sea Spiracy yet?
0: Uh, not yet. Okay. I heard... Uh, I heard about it. I actually heard <laughs> um, the good and the bad, apparently, yeah. of a uh, conspiracy. So, but I can give my complete opinion. I can only base on mm. the two factions. I had people that were totally, yes, a conspiracy. And I also heard a lot of people, scientists primarily saying, careful with conspiracy. With yeah, so, yeah. I'm going to reserve my opinion for when I watch
1: it. Yeah, for sure. Um, There is one thing. Yeah. Go on.
0: Sorry.
1: I was just going to say that um, you're saying that outside our mind. And one of the things that stood out to me on that uh, show was, um, you know, that that you can see the damage that trawler netting, that kind of thing, does from space or from, you know, overhead, as it were. Um, But you can't necessarily see it in day-to-day life our sight, out of mm-hmm. mind
0: that's correct mm-hmm. so there are some, <clears throat> some things that i heard the conspiracy actually uh brought up to the attention there are others that i have some concerns with i heard you know that they say oh everybody starts should stop eating fish mm-hmm. and uh, uh <clears throat> the concern that i have with that and it is in an opinion that goes around quite a lot but um Having lived on an island nation for 27 years, but also having traveled through Fiji and stayed in the village and lived with the local people as well as growing up in Africa. I do believe that a statement like that is um, good for those that have choices. So Mm -hmm. let's call it the Western world or the more, you know, a civilized world. I still do believe that uh, there are places where people cannot afford. Uh, Not to fish, yeah. And so, when it comes to that, is maybe people that have the opportunity should make more mindful choices. So, for example, I have the opportunity, so I have I am making more mindful choices. Yeah. However, I know there's also people out there if you come to the Bahamas and look where the people live in the keys and how they live is uh, the mindful choice might not be available hmm. during COVID. It was not financially available for some people, but to go out and provision for themselves. Yeah. So maybe we should talk about more how uh, fishing Uh, has to change and our expectations is to change. And when I say our expectations, I do believe that people that go to the restaurant expecting always to find always a list of the fish available, that Mm. has to change. That has to disappear. Yeah. But to me, the local guy that swims, yesterday I was out on the boat, there's a guy carrying a cut-off, you know, plastic drum behind himself, free diving with fins mask, you know, like a little bit of duct tape around the master strap, (laughs) trying to catch some lobster and fish and put it in a bucket behind him. Uh, He's not creating a dent into the population, and that's just a a practical provisioning. Uh, I will never allow myself to go up to him and say, hey, sorry, but you know, you should stop fishing and eating fish. It's burning yeah. more calories than he's actually fishing. Yeah, that's
1: just, it's just a ridiculous provision. notion, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So I think these generalized notions that they needs to be applied a little bit differently. Mm. I am totally against longlining, trawling, uh, the industrial fishing, the freezer boats. I am
2: yeah.
0: uh, totally against that. But if we go back to a more traditional kind of provisioning i think there is still room for people to make a living for fish to make a comeback so the pressure needs to stop from the big places from the big cities so to be honest with you from there's in the united states some chain restaurants specialize only in fish and mm-hmm. i try to imagine what it takes to supply chain restaurants so a whole chain of just a seafood those have to go if you want if, if you want my opinion yeah. Not the little Fijian that sits on the side of the road with three fish, a thread through a line that eat fish with maybe a spear.
1: Mm. Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it's it's the bulk, the bulk trawlers, and you know the demand in the in the modern Western world that's causing it all, isn't it?
0: All right. it's just like go to the supermarket and expect not to find fish, and do not complain about it.
1: Mm. Yeah. That
0: is the part you want to do your part is that stop being so picky and demanding.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Western um, world, you've got many animals that you can eat. You can eat a lot of, you know, non-meat as well. Places there's, like a or, meat yeah. there's a lot of non-meat
0: alternatives. There's a lot of non-meat, non-protein, non-meat alternatives that goes from the farmed animals all the way to the farmed fish or the industrial fishing mm. that the Western world has uh, options. Um, I've seen that also, like I was traveling through India, they also don't have no meat Options, but their diets are very, very also in a certain way poor. So, there's Mm. very much alternatives that people can take. Like I said, to transfer that to certain places, for example, the Bahamas, our agriculture is almost inexistent and it's not for lack of trying, it's for lack of terrain. Mm. And it's
1: it's similar in PNG. There is no, uh, well, I can't say none in all of the country, but particularly where I was living, that you don't see cattle. You don't see hens and, and you know, anything that you would take as, as, as farm food or farm animals. It's just non-existent. It's vegetables, stuff from the jungle, and fish. That's it. That's all that's available. So yeah. it's, it's got to be used.
0: Here there's no farming, no cattling, nothing like that either. So. Mm it's a uh, I, I don't know there's a lot of opinions on that is just i um am not what I would call myself an extremist and no. I think sometimes uh blanket statements like that uh, can be harmful because then they're directed towards the uh wrong people and we can go as far as uh, um, we can condemn some of these people doing something, but then I would like to uh, go back and say, hey, how's your family situation at home? How many children do you have? So we need to go further back into the root of the problem. Hmm. Why are these people, for example, uh, Finland sharks?
2: Uh, right? Are yeah. they
0: going out fishing shark? Well, it's because someone from some the outside comes in and says, hey, if you catch a shark, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of these people, I, I watched some of these documentaries, and I'm sorry, I'm against the behavior that I have against it. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe he lives in a hut back at home with five kids to feed. Mm-hmm. So we need to go further back and actually start saying, okay, let me help you and your kids Get out of this hole that you're in Mm -hmm. through education. Uh, One of the programs that we had here um, that I was participating in here on the island with a company called the Underwater Explorer Society was specifically that. We train Bahamians in scuba diving so that they can actually have an alternative career. And the scuba diving is the first step. From there, then a lot of them go, oh, wow, I really love this. And they become uh, actually... Of science teachers, or they actually went into the defense force, or they actually look into a career of tourism, and all of them with a changed focus into protecting their environment. And I've done this for like 20 years. These kids that come out from a local high school, they do 10th, 11th, and 12th grade open water advanced rescue. And then they come under my wing and I do their dive master instructor. And some of them stay Mm -hmm. and then most of them go. And then you check back on them years later and they have all these different careers that has nothing to do with fishing, Mm -hmm. but it has a lot to do with education or protection. The Mm -hmm. defense force, a couple of those guys are very, the defense force is the one that actually controls the ports. They're very adamant about checking containers for illegal shark. And uh, that, I think, is the primary solution, is I need to go at the route. How yeah. do I help this family so that this guy doesn't have to go on the boat to fish the yeah. sharks out, for example? And I think that is how we solved it, and that's what I've been at for over 20 years of my career.
1: Good on you. I was, I was again, referring to PNG, I was doing a little bit out there with um, visiting schools and doing presentations and showing videos to the kids and you know they're asking you know when when can i be old enough to come and learn to dive and um you know it would be nice to see it progress i think it's probably a little bit too remote to be able to do it um but at least we've you know put a little bit of thoughts into their minds about how important the sharks are in the waters there and um, so it was it was rather nice that's There's just...
0: a lot of non-profit here that do a lot of like, oh, even take them snorkeling. Put a yeah. glass on the face and take them snorkeling into the mangroves. Is it, I think that is the eye opener. There's a lot of like work done here in the Bahamas to take the hmm. children to the water because those are the ones that you need to foster obviously into like new ideas, new open-mindedness. And the best way is the exposure. Yeah. So, I think sometimes instead of, you know, wagging your fingers and I do big giant blanket statement, is like it would be nice to actually go at the root and say, okay, let me help it from the ground up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, that, I mean, the only problem I see is, again, thinking back to there, but, you know, there are some locations on, on the earth that are just so remote that, you know, the uh, well, say uh, the, the Chinese guy that rocks up with $100 to say, there you go, go and get me some shark fins. How, how can you prevent that person taking a hundred dollars because it's it's a small fortune in many places in the world and trying to prevent it is just so bloody difficult um it's a shame
0: that's correct so that's where for example shark tourism comes in yeah and it's one like i i applaud the bahamas as well as for example palau or uh, fiji as well hmm. in which they are it's really interesting some of the smallest n- nations right they recognize the value of their alive sharks yeah and they go no 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 wait a minute uh, a dead shark makes a thousand dollars and a live shark makes four hundred thousand dollars if it's a female in their lifespan and they all of a sudden say no we actually appreciate shark tourism and we'll uh, support shark tourism. We're self-regulated. And so we have a very healthy industry of people that come to the Bahamas to dive with our Caribbean reef sharks, the bull sharks, the, the tigers, the oceanic white tip, the great armorheads. Mm. They're like literally 15 minutes from shore on a boat, sometimes 10 minutes from shore on a boat. And that fuels hotels, flights, flights. Uh, the demand on the restaurant so it fuels all sorts of industries it does And so how do you change that person from saying i give you a hundred dollars for a dead sharks or i give you a hundred dollars um and let's say a hundred dollars a week for you to actually constantly taking people to see the live shark yeah so it's $100 once or it's a repeated $100, or it could be even a repeat of $50, right? But then it's repeated. And so in the long term, the repeated $50 is more value than a one-time $100. And I think that is the leverage that we need to look into is – Give value to live sharks. And there's a lot of people, you know, like, oh, shark tourism, you change the sharks, you touch the sharks, you feed the sharks, whatever it is. And like anything, there's good shark diver operators. There's absolutely awful shark dive operators. I have no regard for the sharks, no regard for their guests, no regard for their stuff. But in the end, there is a positive outcome from that. Hmm. which is the understanding that in the same location there is a positive income for the people. And I've seen it here on this island. There used to be a boat that used to do shark fishing for visitors. Obviously, the law changed. Sharks are protected in the Bahamas since 2011. So yeah. now they do glass-bottom boat. How which, brilliant.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so they, could, they can watch you taking all the hooks out that they put in over the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, (laughs) in a way, but they they did like easy fishing, you know, tiny little hook and fishing. But they went from doing this silly, you know, shark fishing, which they never caught them because, you know, they will use too small of a hooks and lines. So, yes, a lot of Mm. hooks and lines inside of sharks to actually glass bottom boat. And it became like, wow, this makes sense. I can come out here five times a day Mm -hmm. with the same group of sharks. And it's renewable. It's a renewable income source. And you don't you don't words, have those
1: you don't have to deal with tourists that are pissed off because they've not caught a shark that, but they've seen what you've said they'll see sharks through the glass in the bottom of the boat easy correct
0: and it's even more fascinating for them yeah and then sometimes the glass bottom boat comes over us while we're diving and people are even more impressed that we're down there you know swimming along on the reef not even just the interruption just swimming along on the reef mm. with divers and sharks Sharks, you know, swim around us. It's like how mind opening is that? Mm. So there are ways to change the uh, even in the remote areas, is say, I'll give you a hundred dollars to take the tourists out to see the shark rather than to for you to fish the sharks. So it's also a guarantee you, it's less dangerous.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um you um you know one of the uh, one of the courses that you do that i noticed is um, you entitled it um, shark was it shark yourself?
0: It's a shark yourself the expression i use with my students yeah. i tell them at the end of my presentation is that you're here to shark yourself. It's called the shark handling course.
2: Okay. And
0: it's a course that i teach one on one with uh, uh, whoever is interested and uh, what they do is uh, they come in and they actually stand side by side with me uh, in full chainmail, and they really learn to uh, connect with the sharks. So it's about understanding my group of sharks, but in general, a little bit sharks' behavior, the fact that it's their ocean, not ours, Um, a little bit understanding that when we go and interact with them, we interact on their terms according to their day rather than our terms. So nothing is guaranteed, but it's more just... um, a shark Yourself Experience is like one of the, I say, say maybe one or the two or three places in the world where somebody will say, yes, please go ahead and reach out and uh, try to touch the sharks and welcome the sharks into your body and just surround yourself. Hmm. And it's very rewarding to teach. I'm actually, this morning, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going, I have a student here, a 18-year-old girl. Oh, yeah? And uh, yes, yeah, so she's absolutely excited. We just started yesterday. She did the observation dive and today we're doing two training dives and it's about really this uh, different outlook at sharks Mm. and hopefully creating a new interest and they become ambassadors. I've taught people that came from all parts of the world and then they go back to these parts of the world of which I do not speak the language and they do their posts in their language. So, you know, like you have somebody going back to Russia and it's like, oh, I just did this thing with Christina. And in Russian, they tell their friends about how amazing sharks are or Czech Republic or Malaysia. Um, I'm trying to think, of, you know, Georgia mm. from the former USSR. So mm-hmm. uh, all these languages that I will never be able to speak, thanks to the person that comes here, they become the ambassador, this bridge mm. between Getting that message across. Yeah, they get the message across to other people. And so as far as Kuwait and India, and I'm trying to think where, you know, like where I've not reached where even there is no. And then through my language, you know, French, Italian, German, I've reached obviously
2: Mm. uh,
0: different countries. But it's really, really cool because they come here for a personal experience and all of a sudden they become ambassadors and they become translators. Yeah. For those in their country that don't speak English, can't follow my account, for example.
1: Well, there's, there's a fair few people that have followed uh, some of the things you've done.
0: Huh. Yes, quite well, a lot.
1: <laughs> I can think of one video that's what, it's nearly 9 million views now, I think. Um, I think it was one of the uh, the shots of you putting your hand inside the mouth of a shark to get the hook.
0: That was a foggy eye, yes. It's one of the most famous ones because that went down like half a length of my arm to just uh, remove a hook.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, just, just remove a hook. Yeah, I'm just going to put my hand in here. Um. It took
0: about 40 minutes. It was now something that, you know, I decided to do within. it. took 40 minutes, opening her mouth to see what her dispositions was, to actually physically see the hook.
2: Hmm. And
0: I was just like, okay. Then seeing how she was with me allowed me, when I opened, just to go in and you know, push and pull. Mm. It was just slightly embedded. So there's the other day there was another shark with a hook down her, mu- her throat and I could see the line, but when I opened her mouth, I couldn't see the hook. Right. So it was so far down that I couldn't see it. It's like I can't go in. I can't yeah. try yeah. to remove that. So, so the hooks are done on a, a choice-to-choice basis.
1: Yeah. So is it a bit of an old wives' tale that uh, I, I can remember – my old man and my granddad used to say to me that if you know if a line snaps when they're fishing, that the hook will just rot out of the fish's mouth eventually.
0: Uh, eventually, sometimes not really, depending on the hooks that people are using. There's hmm. a lot of galvanized, a stainless still hooks nowadays but mm. even if it were rot out for me is a concept of like would you leave a nail on the bottom of your heel because eventually it will rot out
1: yeah and yeah.
0: so i also observe the pain that these sharks go through mm. so people are like well eventually we'll rot out it doesn't make any sense because you know you can't save all the sharks in the world it's like no i can't but i can save these the sharks yeah what has also happened is that when i start helping these sharks people reach out to me and They have kind of like an epiphany and they're like, oh, I didn't know sharks could actually hurt. Mm. and, oh, I want to help sharks, and I want to come and remove the hooks with you, and I'm like, no, listen, you don't have to come and remove the hooks with me to help sharks. Mm. Here's a list of things you can do, and we go through, you know, you can change your dietary habits. You can actually reduce your plastic pollution. You can become more of an eco-tourist rather than always expecting the super clean beach with a super perfect resort. You can go and do more natural tours with local people that emphasizes the tourism, income of using someone local rather than using like a big you know like a cruise environment or anything like that so there's a lot of things that we can do and so the simple act of removing the hook which for me is I want to help that shark that shark is my baby I'm going to help her as much as I can Yeah. Right. it's silly it's not silly it's my prerogative these are my sharks I don't want to see them suffer then it becomes like, oh, wow, I want to help sharks too. And then it mm-hmm. becomes this bigger call to action. So I think there is mm-hmm. a value in that.
1: Yeah. What you do with removing hooks does infinitely more than what most documentaries could ever do.
2: Yes, For people to see
1: uh, sharks effectively looking like they're sleeping on your lap and you removing shark uh, hooks from their mouths. It just goes completely against the grain of, well, the past two generations or so of looking at sharks and seeing the horror that's been portrayed on the TV.
0: That's correct. There is, I think, a lot of misinformation. It's very hard to skirt out of it. Like I'm part of, you know, sometimes I do TV programs and sometimes always start with this kind of like heightened state. And I'm like, why do you always have to start with a heightened state when you know that the end result is we're going swimming with sharks, and it's okay to go swimming with sharks. And so, mm. um, for whatever reason, you know, there's a still a little bit of this attitude, and I think it does a disservice, a, a disservice to the sharks. I've tried to skirt out of it. It's not always possible, but luckily also been part of a program where they really understood my nature and just portrayed that kind of part of who I am and what I do. With the, thing, the amount of messages that I receive from all my platforms, it's very uh, rewarding and very supportive of what I do. And primarily it's messages from people that are like, I was so terrified of sharks, but just watching your interactions and reading your posts and your small explanations just gives me a further new outlook.
2: Hmm.
0: And they're like, I want to work on my fear." Well, that is a tremendous step. When somebody emails me and says, I want to work on my fear, how cool is that? And so there is a positive outcome from the imagery and the work that I do. I feel that every day. I receive dozens of messages um, combined from all platforms.
1: I'm not surprised. Not surprised in the slightest,
0: and a lot of women, which is really cool, and a lot of young people, and a lot of parents. Parents is so cool. My nine-year-old daughter <laughs> wants to do what you do. My ten-year-old son is so cool. Is so interested now in sharks. They didn't even know, and and says that is, I think, the change that is very very important. So I receive a lot of those, and it it, it makes it worth it for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's truly marvellous. I really do, and um, I'm very grateful that you've come onto my little show. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, just to just, uh, you've probably answered it a million times now, but um, for those people that um, are only just learning about you and they've probably googled you already, the chainmail. <laughs> Where did the chainmail come in? How did that start?
0: So, Chamele was created as a collaborative effect from yours very own uh, Ron and Valerie Taylor. Oh, yeah? And a gentleman called Jeremiah Sullivan back in the days. So, Ron and Valerie Taylor, if you are Australians and you don't know about them, shame on you. (laughs) Uh, They were... They were, uh, Ron passed away, Valerie's still alive, mm-hmm. So, but as a couple, they were uh, pioneers of underwater filming and underwater filming with sharks. Mm-hmm. And they uh, filmed in uh, circumstances in which there was a lot of activity, let's say, like a bait balls so or sharks darting in and out, dolphins darting in and out. And it was not about the sharks the per se attacking them, but was the risk of being in the trajectory of the sharks. And so mm. they wanted to wear something that was safe for them to stick their arms out while holding the camera and not having to worry about if a shark bumped into their arm or bumped into their leg. Yeah. And that is where the chain comes from. The original chain is actually from the butcher, the butcher gloves that is used on the non-cutting hand. I w- yeah, cutting I was gonna
1: ask where it you know the the origins of that.
0: That is where it came from. It's a chamois glove that butchers put on an non-cutting hand when they use a sharp blade, mm. so that if the blade slips, they don't cut their hand. And so then it was made into this uh, full suit. When it came in, it was supposed to actually to be brought, uh, worn by Ron, but it came in too small. Ah. So Valerie ended up wearing the suit. So the first human to ever taste the suit was this tiny absolutely beauty of a doll woman, Valerie Taylor, and basically, literally, she would put the fish on her arm and invite uh, sharks, you know, at the time, blue sharks, to Uh bite her arm So that's where it was born. It was actually born from Ron and Valerie Taylor and that cooperation. uh, Then Jeremiah created this company called Neptunic, and then Neptunic has, in the last few years, changed Uh, ownership and is now based out of florida okay and so that's where i still get my suits from is Mm. from the original uh neptunic um but the suits are actually created in canada really? (laughs) by two apparently very passionate chainmail uh creators who are very much in everything chainmail including you know game of game of thrones for example uh-huh. create all sorts of different chainmail and they're very fascinated with the functionality and the chainmail is what i call the barrier that drops the barrier between me and the sharks yeah yeah it's the seat belt that you wear when you go uh uh car driving a car it's a helmet that you wear mm. when you go climbing well right? that's it. it's, it's, not, knee- it's
1: yeah it's not there because you're going to get bitten it's it's in case there's accidental damage
0: Exactly. Yeah. And the people are like, you know, people are like, well, if the sharks are so nice, why you wear a suit? And it's just kind of like, well, if you can drive so well, you know, while you're wearing a seatbelt, it's like you don't go driving every time thinking you're going to go in a ditch. Mm. But in case you make a mistake, so uh, they're still animals. There's still animals with two to 15 rows of teeth. And because mm-hmm. of what I'm doing, the, the handling or the removing of the hooks, such in close proximity with with my hands to their jaws mm. i wear that but if you look at the video you'll see the sharks are swimming around me yeah. at no time trying to bite my arms or my legs so that's what it's there for yeah. by protecting myself i protect the sharks and i'm doing that i protect the activity that we do yes. by demonstrating that i can self regulate and i can self protect i make shark diving a safe activity and the government doesn't turn around and is like, wow, every time you guys go shark diving, one of you is hurt. Mm
2: -hmm. I have
0: to intervene. I have to stop this. This is not really going well. Mm -hmm. But having conscious operators of which we have a ton in the Bahamas that are really doing things with their head on their shoulders and procedures and practices and all of that, the government looks at us and says, yeah, you guys have an excellent track record. Behavion operators have very, 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 very minimal small accidents. Mm -hmm. So we'll continue with this activity. This is actually functioning. And that is, I think, uh, just a responsible person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? As long as you go into it and do it with knowledge and a respect for safety, then there's no reason why it can't be done.
0: Correct. You have to have respect and you have to be, um, you can't go in as, you know, as rumble, as a gang ho. It's mm-hmm. like sharks have a high, high tolerance of our presence. I think it's one of the most forgiving wild animals out there. You could not go strolling in the savannah. The same way we go strolling through the ocean, mm-hmm. swimming side by side with tigers, just scuba diving side by side with great whites, let's face it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. places where you can do that. You could not go walking outside. When I grew up in the Congo, we had limitations. You do not go down to the river. Yeah. There's crocodiles that look like logs. <laughs> yeah. And you do not approach the water. And it's just like really interesting, right? Even when I was in the Nanlabor desert, uh, it's like you are careful going outside of the compound because there are still wild dingoes. And yeah. they're capable of taking down a kangaroo. Never mind a kangaroo himself is not like the safest of the animals to encounter. Hmm. So we do understand that. We appreciate that. You go walking in Canada, you have to be careful about black, brown and grizzly bears, <laughs> <laughs> and yet in the ocean we can go with a freedom that is now guaranteed on land and still we have this much heightened fear oh I'm going to go in the water and the sharks will eat me and it's kind of like the very much tolerant of our presence way way more mm. than any w- other wild animal.
1: I've always explained to especially new divers that you know when there's a little bit of apprehension that when we get in the water as divers it's as though the wildlife down there all the fish down there See you as a bigger fish, and the sharks also see you as a bigger fish. Uh, you're just putting out a lot more bubbles than they do, um, but they they may be inquisitive, but they're not going to attack you just because you look different.
0: No, actually, they'll run away. I mm-hmm. mean, you're making bubbles, you make a lot of noise. If you're a new diver, you're kind of like swimming a little bit like a frog in a blender. So chances <laughs> are, you can displace a lot of water. There's a lot of movement. And they're actually more kind of like intimidated by that. And they're just Mm -hmm. like, oh, what is all this commotion? Now, sharks are used to divers. All they're going to do is inquisit and say, hey, are you the divers that are coming here for the dive, Mm -hmm. like my sharks? And then they go, huh, you're not here for the dive. Boring. And so
1: you say your sharks, you – have you got the the, the regular same sharks that, that rock up, you recognize them as individuals?
0: Yes, I actually can physically recognize. I can actually recognize some of them from the way they swim. Really? But I recognize each and every one of them, yes.
1: Yeah. That's marvelous.
0: I, I've been in the water with some of them for 15, 17 years. There's a couple of girls that have been there 15, and one girl's been 17 years here. Crikey. That's a long time. So... Um, I even have my friend, the anemone that has been there 17 years, but that's a different story. But
2: uh, <laughs> I basically,
0: that is one of the things I love to do. One of the reasons I stay here, both for the case and Sharks, is what I call dive-side fidelity, mm. which is that continuous repetition and exposure to the same place and the same individuals and allows me really to collect this log of, you know, presence and behaviors and... Uh, Differences in behaviors depending even, for example, on the weather or human activity. I can tell, like, there are different dispositions depending on the different external factors. And that comes Mm -hmm. from, like, spending countless hours in the water. It's, um, I tell people, it's like building a relationship. You don't build on a relationship on speed dating. You don't even build a relationship on your 10th date.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You can say you're in a. You can start a relationship, but you can really say maybe you're in a relationship six months, a year into really uh, connecting and knowing that person. That there's still more to know and to connect with, and so it's the same thing with sharks. I'm trying to build a relationship. It doesn't come just because I helicopter in, you know, once every once a month or twice a year or anything like that. It's hmm. this constant presence?
1: And they they know it's you when you're getting in the water, kind of thing.
0: A lot of people say they do. Um, I've noticed even when I teach the course, I can have the students several feet away from me and they have, you know, the fish and everything. But some of my girls will uh, preferably come to me rather than going to the student, to the Mm. new person. Um, They're very keen. I had a shark. A foggy eye used to follow me no matter if I was doing the dive or if I was just down there guiding someone.
2: (laughs) She will just follow
0: me the entire dive. Always. I had a grouper that did the same. Um, I had a secret agent and peanut that no matter if I was down for the shark dive or if I was down there diving or even free diving, they will mm. just basically be with me the entire dive, stand next to me. and it's just kind of like, yeah, no, I'll stick with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was, I was listening to a, um, a podcast last month and I'm trying to think of his name. And he's a, a doctor out of Queensland, Callum, I think. Callum something. I'll have to look it up again. But he, he actually studies the the cognitive functions of fish and I'll I'll find the podcast I'll send it over to you because it's it's so interesting the way that you know they're testing fish to see how they communicate and what they do in some scenarios and then they repeat exactly the same scenario to see if they react the same way and it's it's just mind-blowing and from everything that you're saying right now it's just amplifying what he's saying uh, in his theories or, or research fact
0: there's there's a lot of research and that's the other thing right like people's i had people writing you know tweeters or texts like ah oh, sharks don't think with their brains that think with their jaws and it's kind of like well actually no they have a brain and they use it mm. but i mean we're going back to 1957 uh, dr eugenie clark the mm. shark lady mm-hmm. um, not your shark lady, the shark lady here. um, She actually did tests on memory retention of sharks with, you know, hitting a target, ringing the bell and almost like what you do with a dog. So they hit a target, they got a fish, she rang the bell and then she uh, she got to the point where she a bell, it was a sound on the water. Hmm. She rang the sound on the water and the shark will show up, say, Hey, I'm here for my reward. <laughs> so a full cognitive connection and a memory retention. She demonstrated that in nineteen fifty-seven. It's in her book, The Lady and the Shark. Okay. Um there's another book that is really cool like that, it's from Jonathan Balcom. Okay. It's called What a Fish Knows. And it's about like the thinking and like the behavior of the fish but also how they communicate and the hormonal and all that and it goes beyond you know oh this is a fish this is how it swims this is where you find it, it is more about all the behavior and the psychology so much research in that book hmm. and kind of like cute funny informative it's called what a fish knows it's like really really cool
1: i'll have to have a look at that one i like stuff like that um, I did, um, there, there's one question I've got to ask you. There's a, um, a guy over here in Sydney, and um, he's part of a, a a buddy forum online on Facebook. And uh, uh, Philippe Carmo, um, he's asked me to ask if you have ever been in a situation where you felt really threatened by sharks. And if, if so, how did you overcome it?
0: I never have uh, felt threatened in that kind of situation, and I've done um, quite like what I would say you know like uh, fairly dangerous activities, including spear and lionfish, which is an invasive species here, mm. uh, surrounded by a lot of sharks. But um, in their behavior, I also know how they behave, and so like I set up a structure uh, to. Um, uh, feel comfortable in what was happening hmm. so personally luckily no i never felt into that kind of like whew, i made it out of the water <laughs> kind of situation there are instances in people where people have uh, come to that i think the fear of sharks in general can be uh, thought through uh, one basic thing. The first one is really understanding how many species of sharks that are out there hmm. and then uh, being a little bit informed on what kind of species are going to be in the water where I'm going to do and then pair that with the activity I'm going to do. Yeah. So are there areas where our behavior is going to be risk? Yes, absolutely. If I go, for example, and most of the dangerous situations are on the surface. Yes. But I don't want people to think that every time you're on the surface, you're in danger. Because if you're on the surface here in the Bahamas, you're swimming over nurse sharks.
2: Yeah. (laughs) In zero
0: danger. Even if you're on the surface here and you swim over the Caribbean reef sharks, you're in zero danger. Hmm. So you need, again, you need to know which area you're in, what sharks are there, what are their predatory characteristics. So, for example, Australia has a high... Uh, rate of incidence because you have two things that go hand in hand you have the surfers that go into the predatory area of great whites mm-hmm. and surfers behave like seals, the seals to surf the waves mm-hmm. and it brings into that isolation of the surfer that sits on the board for a while, waits for the wave maybe drifts away from the group and increases the chances mm-hmm. But if you really look at the numbers in general very low. So, yes, there is a risk. Uh, it's okay to be afraid of sharks.
2: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: it's okay to put your hand in the oven trying to get your, uh, you know, your uh, tray out without a mitten.
2: Mm. So yeah. <laughs> it's okay.
0: Fear helps into our survival. Is when fear blocks us in our steps from doing anything that is unhealthy. Yes. It's when I'm saying, well, I had, you know, a kid yesterday. It's like, oh, I don't want to go swimming here in the Bahamas because there are sharks. And I'm like, there's clear water. There's calm water. The sharks can see you. We have plenty of swimmers. The conditions are for a shark to go, yeah, you're uh, you're actually totally a stranger.
2: Hmm.
0: So, um, first one so is understanding the sharks, their behavior, and the activity I'm going to do. Um, the last one goes into sometimes. Sometimes we might have to say, not today. And that I think is the biggest thing the humans have to learn is not today. Not because sharks are vicious. Not because they're there to get us. But not today, but because when I tick the boxes, mm-hmm. today the conditions are not healthy. Today the conditions are not safe. It doesn't make the sharks vicious. It just makes the sharks who they are in their ocean.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we have the option to go in or the option to stay out.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I suppose um, I'm just thinking because when you said that, you know, you make a decision not today. Um, I instantly thought of another one of your videos from my Facebook stalking the other day was um, <laughs> <laughs> when you you'd hiked in to do a cave dive. Couple of hours got all set up and all that kind of stuff. And then any, 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 any came Into your head, any, and you, any, 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 and you thumb the dive. And yes. that what I did, didn't even
0: submerge, yeah. I didn't even submerge, it's just basically told my buddy, You go and do, he had some other things to do. Uh-huh. I said, You go and do your dive. Uh, we just readjusted the bottom time, and I basically hauled all my stuff back out of the cave and back to the truck.
1: Yeah, well, that watching that bit of the video as well, it, it, it gave me flashbacks to talking to Gareth Locke a few episodes ago, who's doing the human mm-hmm. factors in diving. Correct. Is there space for that in the professional tri- training? I'm going to literally ask every course director that I talk to on this, uh, on this podcast, the thoughts on human factors and where it would
0: sit in. Yeah. I am very fond of Gareth Locke and the, the concept of human factor. I'm very mm. fond of sharing the uh, near misses rather than just the misses and say, well, this happened. And that's the reason why, for example, in my training, I always tell my divers, you have to go diving for yourself. Mm-hmm. So things might happen. And if you do them within the parameter of your training, you also have the tools to get yourself out of the situation. And then you go a little bit further within the parameter of your training. And then something else happened. And so... Uh, a lot of suggestions that I give people is go diving, gain experience. Yeah. It's okay to make mistakes, right? If you do the mistake within your parameters, all you're going to do is fix the mistake and go, oh, I learned that. Yes. That was this issues and that issues and discuss them. So try not to do the zero to hero, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, But yes, there is room. There, for me, there is room. And luckily, I have a position here. In which I had, I trained someone to dive master and they wanted to go immediately to instructor and I had the uh, power in a certain way in the position to say, no, um, you're going to wait one year. Yeah. So why don't you sit a dive master for a year? Don't worry about teaching. Don't worry about try to take someone new in the water. Just go out and guide the certified divers. And then a year later, when I put her through her instructor course, and I asked her, I said, was it worth? She glided through the instructor course, absolutely glided through the instructor course. And I said, was it worth waiting? And she said, absolutely i said there's nothing like a year of doing the dive master which has less liability because you're dealing with certified divers Mm -hmm. and then me preparing her for instructors for her to go it really made a difference
1: yeah well that's the thing i mean you can't teach experience can you you can only gain it you can talk about it but to to get experience you've got to actually physically do the job
0: You can't teach experience. You have to gain experience. One of the things I mentioned, Kevin, uh, the guy that we did the exploration of the caves together, right? Mm -hmm. When he started cave diving, it was uh, three years ago, and and I told him, I said, you have work to put in. Some days you will come diving with me, and we'll just go a little bit further into your training. But before we do that, I said, you need to swim the lines within your parameters of your training. Some days that would be you. Some days not because you know, cave diving was also my activity. And so he swam all these lines. And Mm. then we went a little bit further into the training. And then he did a little bit more into that level of training. And so it was a progressive, slow um, review, you know. And sometimes we might be diving together and I will catch something and we will come out and we will discuss it. Mm. But sometimes I will dive and I... Uh, would catch something on myself and I will come out and voice it and say, ah, during that dive, this happened or this feeling surface, or I have this, I need to change that. It did not work well. And we actually have an open discussion on some of these um, actions. You know? um, mm-hmm. and, and that I think is what Gareth is trying to say is Let's talk about these things. Yeah. Instead of pointing fingers and "No, it would never happen to me." It's like, "Yes, because there is one common denominator in all of us is we're human and we make mistakes."
1: Yeah. And you kicked you kicked on a a key factor there as well. He's been he's been able to discuss it afterwards.
0: Yes. And it's it's very rare that, that happens it.
1: with 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 recreational divers, you know.
0: It, it is. They I actually have this thing. I do it on the boat when I come out with my recreational divers, obviously in a, in a soft manner. But I actually say, hey, you know, I was watching you. Uh, your obesity was like super inflated. You might want to try, you know, how did you feel? So did you inflate and deflate a lot? It's like, oh, yeah, I did. So you might want to try two pounds less. Right. And mm. and it's just um so, you kind of like do an approach, but yeah, it, it should be talked about. Yeah. And it's really funny. It's like, uh, for example, I've been bent twice, right? Uh, you've, in you've my early career. What? Banned? In 95, 95, bent, yes, yeah, oh. the DCS in 95 oh, band, and 96. Band. Bent, bent, B-E-N-T. And every time I say I've been bent, the first question that I receive from a recreation dive is, oh, what did you do wrong? And I'm like, (laughs) uh, I went diving, (laughs) and I decided to come up. (laughs) If we actually had an open conversation that having the bends, it is an inherent risk of submerging, Mm -hmm. absorbing nitrogen, and ascending. Yeah. There's a joke, but it's not a joke, it's a truth. If you never want to get bent, they say don't go diving, or if you go diving, don't come up, because as soon as you increase, you have a difference in a partial pressure and a gas exchange with a turn on external, mm. there's a bubble production. Yeah. Obviously we mitigate that. I got bent on a series of issues and it was just like little tiny Escalating issues, dehydration, being cold, uh, diving 21 days in a row, doing too many dives. But if you Mm. looked at my profiles, they're all within the limits. Perfect, yeah. All within perfect on the table. And so being able to eradicate that, oh, what did you do wrong? I would never do that. And it's kind of like you don't know all the psychological leading factors to that moment. Mm. And that is the issue, and that's what Gareth is trying to explain. It's not just, "Well, I will never do this. I will never go in the water without checking my oxygen on the rebreather." It's like you don't know what were the destruct. We need to understand the distracting factors up to that moment. We need to understand the psychological pressure up to that moment. We need to understand what actually happened at home sometimes. Yeah, with maybe the loved ones that actually triggered something and being able to confront all of that and say, well, if that kind of emotional response is present again, is there something I need to be aware of and I need to open the box and deal with before I go on the dive? Because last time I actually did this.
1: Yeah. I think we've got another podcast out of that one, you know. (laughs) We should, we should talk about training in depth with maybe another CD Gareth, and Gareth and just smash it out.
0: I would love to. Awesome. I would love to. I'm a kind of like a little bit, uh, people would say like an old school.
2: Yeah.
0: Is, I'm a firm believer that underwater we have zero instinct. Mm-hmm. Zero. Anything that is a human is built in me from my ancestors is going to kill me on the water. Yeah. And so what I do with my training, I try to instill what I call trained instincts. So things are repeated
2: mm-hmm. and
0: practiced and down to the point that I think, well, that's an instinct. Yeah, It's like, well, it's not. It's actually, you learned it. It's a trained instinct because yeah. the instinct of someone that is not trained, if they were to run out of water, out of, sorry, out of <laughs> air, underwater, <laughs> is to shoot to the surface. The trained instinct is to either switch, like in some cases, on a redundant system or to go to a buddy. Mm-hmm. Right? So that is the trained instinct. Instinctually, I will never go to the surface. Instinctually, I'll turn into either my um, redundant system,
2: mm-hmm. a
0: bailout system, or my buddy. Mm. But that is not the response that naturally as an animal I would have. Yeah. So for me, it's very important in training to do this trained instinct. It's like it becomes so natural that you think that is the only option.
1: Sure. I, I've, I've been a massive believer, repetition, repetition, repetition. And it's got to be done Correct. that way. It's got to it's be go second diving, nature. diving,
0: diving, diving. You yeah. have to go diving. Just don't keep doing – the, the premise is that a lot of people, they do courses, 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 courses. That's okay. But you need to go diving because when you do all these courses, you're always under a protective wing. Mm. You always have a little bit of a, like extra, you know, like a uh, supervision from somebody that is hiring you. Go diving. <laughs> yeah. Good Get
1: out there and make your mistakes and have fun. Yes. Mm. Christina, I, th- I think we should wrap it up. I think we've been going for about an hour and a half now.
0: Yes, we and I have. feel like
1: we're only just getting going as well. You're not <laughs> going to get in the water if we keep going.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to go soon.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, well, we, we can wrap the podcast up, and we'll we'll definitely um, come back and do the training bit as well. Uh, I would that love would be, to. That it would be, be an really awesome cool. idea. Okay, well, thank you very much for being on the show, and uh, thanks everybody. This
2: is Scuba Go Go, the
0: podcast for the
2: inquisitive diver.